Good morning, Rethink Church. Good morning. We invite you to worship with us. So why don't you stand on your feet? Go ahead and <coughs> clear your vocal cords and sing along with us. All right, here we go, church.
worship you. Come on. You are here, moving in our midst. I worship you. I worship you. church even when I don't see it you're working even when I don't feel it you're working you never stop you never stop working you never stop you never stop working even when I don't see it you're working even when I don't feel it you're working you never stop you never stop working you never stop you never stop working Work. 
believe that, Father, that you are the light in the darkness. So help us be the light in the darkness in our communities, in our homes, in the workplace. Lord, help us take this worshipful moment beyond right now. Let our lives be a life filled of worship, God. Because worship is in all that we do. It's not just singing a song, God, but it's how we serve you. We love you, Lord. Prepare our hearts for the word that you have for us today. Give it through Mark. Open up our ears to hear. Soften our hearts to receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. Amen. You may be seated, church. And give a warm welcome to Abby as she has some announcements for you. Good morning, everybody. I am Abby. If you don't know me, um, if you are new or visiting with us, I'd love to connect with you after the service in our guest services area, which is over in our One Cup Cafe out there. And um, we do have a gift for you guys for joining us this morning, and we'd love to answer any questions you might have. Um, we have a couple of things coming up next week on the 28th. That is on Sunday. Uh, first thing we have is we are having a sprinkle for the Coles. Um, she is due with her baby here pretty soon. And as a church, we just want to love on them and shower them with money, Huggies diapers, gift cards, all that good stuff. So um, we do ask that you RSVP. Today is the deadline to RSVP. You can either, um, there's a sign sign up sheet in the back on that little table by the door, um, or you can text 708-600-7572 to RSVP. Let us know how many people are coming. There will be some food. Um, children are welcome. Child care is not provided, though, um, but we'd love to see you guys there so we can just shower them with so much love before this baby comes. Um, and then same day on the 28th um, from 5.30 to 7, we're going to have a youth night uh, led by Roland. Um, so that's for middle school and high school students can join us from 5.30 to 7 that night um, and engage in some time specifically for you guys. Um, and then uh, we are going to be doing an a special mini-series within our larger series in February. Um, so right now we are in the Way of the Exile is our main series. Um, and in February, the mini-series within that series is the, the New Rules of Sex, Love, and Dating, a Christ-like approach to marriage, love, dating. Uh, so join us for that series that's coming up appropriately in the month of love. <laughs> I think that was strategic. Um, and then lastly, as we go into our tithes and offering portion of the service, um, I just want to challenge you guys to take some time this month uh, to really pray to God and ask him what he's asking you to give. Um, it's a big question. Uh, it's a scary question. But this is a God who loves us so much, and he wants to partner with us uh, in the work that he's doing. So our challenge is just ask him, see what he says. Um, so if you do want to partner with us and give at Rethink Church, we have two ways you can do so. Uh, there is a black box next to the door um, on the wall, or you can give online at rethinkchurch.cc. We're really glad you guys could join us this morning.
right, well, hey, good morning. Welcome to church. My name is Mark. Good to pastor our church. Uh, so before we get into the sermon, there was a fire that happened in an apartment complex a couple weeks ago here in Maryville. About 60 families or so were displaced. And so as a church, a township, they're going to collect all this, the food, clothing, and all that. And we'll have a drop box here at the church if you want to start bringing that stuff in. We'll bring it there. If you want to give them cold, hard cash, you can do that as well. Um, we'll just see what happens. So my thing is, let's just, like we say this every week, let's go be the church, right? Here's a need. We get to fill that need and all that. And so those are tangible ways we get to put that into practice, especially when it comes to generosity, right? So toilet, we'll have a list for you guys. Uh, we'll put it on social media and our website. Uh, but you can contact the township as well directly and say, hey, what are the things they need? Uh, so toiletries, clothing, food, money, I'm sure blankets and stuff like that. It's not like it's the warmest time of the year. Imagine being displaced in the coldest time in the season. You know what I mean? So that's all that uh, into that. So today what we're going to do is we're going to dive right back into the way of the exile <clears throat> and talking about these patterns and these ways that we could actually live our lives and stuff like this. Next week we're going to tackle the idea of what is an exile actually, what is an exile? Uh, we have an idea of it. It's kind of like a word that we say all the time, but we don't really know what it means, right? And how big of a theme it is throughout the scriptures and the time of Jesus and stuff like that. So here's the deal. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the scariest thing to me about when we follow Jesus is that I'm not just saved from like hell. The scariest thing to me is that Jesus says, hey, I want you to grow and mature and then go out and live and represent me as you live. And I don't know about you, but it's not like I'm perfect, right? And here's the harshest, the harshest part about this. There's no plan B for Jesus. His church is his plan, like plan A. Does that make sense? Everything we, like everything we want to see change in our world, guess who's left? he's left that up to? What do you say? The very last thing, go make disciples. Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? If you don't like certain things in this world, guess who's responsible for changing those things in this world? You are. Suck it up, buttercup. Let's go, right? So if you want to like see something change, you should probably get, in, get involved. It's really easy to stand back and say, yeah, I don't like that, but not get engaged. Does that make sense? So here's the deal. It's so easy, especially in the Western church, to think, well, I just need to get, like, I need to pray this prayer, and every once in a while I'll show up to church. Like, reports have told us this, right? That the idea of going to church on a regular basis, you show up every six weeks, and that's a regular attender of church, right? So that doesn't seem a lot. When I started being, when I was a pastor, it was every four weeks, and now it's, we moved it to every six weeks. Probably in 10 to 20 years, it's going to be if you showed up three times in a year. You're a regular attender of church. Does that make sense? And I don't say this in a bashing way. Some people have just never grown up in church. The idea of going to church is a foreign concept. And so going every six weeks is way better than not going at all. Right? If you show up to a gym every six days, you're doing something more than nothing. Right? There's, there's improvement. That's all this process. And so there's, that's the reality of it. Um, <clears throat> but as followers of Jesus, if we claim to follow Jesus... We can no longer just sit on the sidelines and be like, well, it's for the pastors to figure out. We've all done this too much, right? And so we've made idols out of pastors. We've said, oh, look how great they are. By the way, like, I don't do anything super special. I don't levitate. I don't do anything. Like, when I pray, it's just as much as when you pray, right? It doesn't say, like, if you have the title reverend, then your prayers are effective. Scripture says if you're a righteous person, your prayers are effective, right? It's easy to get a title. It's really hard to be uh, righteous. It's more of a challenge. So that's part of this process, right? So <clears throat> the idea of 
like we get to go out and represent this and we get to be the, the plan A and get the whole thing. Like following Jesus is not just getting something like we get saved from something, we get saved to something. And salvation doesn't just come to us, it comes through us. Each of us were introduced to Jesus through certain people. Whether it was a pastor, a family, a friend, a coworker, whoever it was, somehow you got introduced to Jesus. So you didn't just wake up one day and be like, oh, Jesus, yes. Right? Like there are miracle times where that happens, but most of the time we've heard about Jesus through somebody. And now as a follower of Jesus, now you get to go be a representation of Jesus to those people who are far from God but close to you. Right? <clears throat> so you're the plan A. It's an all skate. Get involved. Figure it out. Right? And if you don't know how to do it, fake until you make it. Right? Look at people you respect, and you're like, oh, they live and follow Jesus this way. Maybe I should do some of the things that they're doing. But here's the challenge, and I just want to say this. As a follower of Jesus, like I've asked this question several times. If I wasn't a follower of Jesus, why would I become a follower of Jesus based on his people today? When I was 17 years old, it was the biggest thing, and I had to like wrestle down, am I following Jesus because I want to like have the example of other people, or am I following Jesus because I really trust him? And I really believe that he is who the scripture says he, says he is, right? So as, his as the people who get to represent him, we have to start evaluating that we live our lives, right? Think about marriage. Divorce rates are just the same in church as they are outside of the church. The way that we treat other people, are we doing great? If you look at levels of anxiety and depression and mental health, health issues and stuff like that, <clears throat> all of those concepts are pretty much the same, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. It's one of those things you just have to kind of start evaluating and say, what am I doing here? Why am I here? Does that make sense? When it comes down to engaging on Facebook, how great are Christians at engaging on Facebook? Half the time we look like morons, right? Half the time we're also debating, like I was, I'm part of a couple of weird theological groups because whatever, um, it is what it is, right? I also love, like, I have a barbecue page, and I'm also in it, so I, like, go back and forth to balance myself out, so I'm not a complete moron or weirdo. So, I get it. So, but here's, like, I was part of a uh, pastor's group that, a couple years ago, and we were literally, like, there's a debate going on about the technicalities of the scriptures in the Greek, and non-Christians were watching. This was not a private group. It was a public group. And I was like, do you understand what we're doing here? We're literally representing Jesus. And you're arguing, calling people stupid. How, how can you read the Bible? And got, like, you must be a moron. You must be a fool. And I was like, what are we doing here? If I'm a non-Christian, I'm watching this going, yeah, I'm out. I'll go, like, they, they now have uh, secular churches where you can go through the motions of church, but without the God stuff. And I'm like, if I was a non-Christian, based on what I saw here, it seems appealing to me. Makes me feel good about myself. My heart can go pitter patter when it wants to, and all that. So, as a follower of Jesus, here's the deal the way we live our life matters. How you and I represent Jesus matters. And one of the biggest things that we have to come across and be at least aware of is that we have enemies of our soul that want to attack us, to destroy us, to just like derail your life, that want you to stay in this shame, ashamed and bitter and just like you feel overlooked. Like that's not God's plan for you. And the way of the exile is a way that we're going to stand in the face of all of this crap within the church and the culture and everything and say, you know what, I may not fit anywhere, but at least I'm following God. And at least I'm following his way. And if we can do that well, 
then maybe, just maybe, somebody who's far from God but close to you could look at you and be like, oh, there's something different about their life. The way that they live isn't the same way that everyone else lives, right? We have a couple of enemies of our soul. The number one thing, uh, the biggest thing, Dallas Willard says this, that the first enemy of our soul is what we call Christian busyness. That we just want to stay busy all the time. We want to go from activity to activity, to thing, to thing, to thing, and over and over again, we just get so busy. One of the reasons we have a very simple schedule here at the church is so we don't fall into that. We are not your social club. I'm sorry to say that. I'm really, you know, I don't lose any sleep over it, but some people do. Um, <clears throat> but here's what we do as, as an, uh, what we offer at church. We have a very simple approach to it. Our Sunday morning service is a Christ-centered worship set of some sort. We have some time of reflection, some stuff like that. Our sermons are Christ-centered and all that. That's one hour of 168 hours in a week. So what we do with 167 hours outside of this week is we offer discipleship pathways, what we call banded and rooted and stuff like that. Rooted is the foundation level. Banded is this group where we get together and we pray, we read the scriptures together, and we hold each other accountable and encourage each other, right? And then outside of that, we offer some things like the church word is fellowship. If you don't know what that means, it just means can you get together and hang out to each other, hang out with each other. Does that make sense? So if you want to sound fancy and churchy, say fellowship. If you don't, just say we're going to get together and hang out. That's what normal people say. Does that make sense? So that's what we offer. And the, the simple approach to that, we do that here. We do that in kids' ministry. We'll do that with student ministries. Uh, it's a very simple approach. And if you want more, figure it out yourself. That's what I have to tell you. Like, if you want to have a tea drinking club, enjoy that. I just won't, I will never schedule that one. I don't want to eat leaves or I want to eat your dirt, stuff like that. But one of the things we don't want to do is sit so busy at church that you can't represent God outside of this church. And there are churches around. I grew up in a church like that. Uh, Michael Ziccarelli, he's this brilliant guy who did a five-year study. Think about this. We did a, this guy did a five-year study of over 18,000, sorry, 20,000 people in 138 different countries from 15 to 88 people, like the age range. We get so impatient about 30 seconds of wait time, don't we? This guy waited five years to figure out this pattern. And here's what he found out. Here's what this, the summary of the study goes like this. And this is all Christians. People claim to be Christians. Christians are assimilating into culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads them to the second step, which is marginalizing God. We give God the leftovers of our life because of our schedule, because of our busyness and all this, because of the way we spend our time and our money and stuff like that. The third part of this is that we, do, we have a deteriorating relationship with God. Because we give him the margins of our life and the leftovers, we know we have this understanding of like, well, I really don't feel like God loves me anymore or whatever, right? <clears throat> Which leads Christians to being more vulnerable to adopt a lifestyle that reflects the society around them, the busyness, the overload, the overworked, and all that. The top three professions of people who have fallen into this are doctors, lawyers, and pastors. And 85% of American pastors, according to Barna, are narcissists. I'll let you decide what you want to do with that information. But here's the deal. As followers of Jesus, it's so easy just to say, can I just pray the prayer and wait for God to come back and we get to go to heaven, float on the cloud and worship Jesus and sing songs all day long? That seems really like a boring approach of heaven, which we'll get into that later in this series. But <clears throat> anyway, I can't get, uh, yeah, let me pause here. So we can't necessarily get into that approach, right? 
here's the deal. Like, I think God has more in store for us. There's a reason we don't just pray the prayer and evacuate to heaven. He has something planned for you. And as you and I get to live this out, we get to have some deep roots here, and we get to create the culture. We talked about this last week. One of our main goals or callings of a follower of Jesus, as a human in general, is to create a God-honoring culture where you live, where you work, and where you hang out. And so if you don't like the people around you and what's going on around you, create the culture. You represent the king. As a human, we're meant to rule and to reign over the earth and the created order of that and stuff like that. So that's part of this process. Uh, there's a weird dichotomy going on in American culture. We've talked about this a few times before, that as an American society, we have work, like American workforce that works 137 hours more than the Japanese, 260 hours more than the British in a year, 499 more hours than the French. Right? And yet, according to a CBS News article, we have 7 million able-bodied, like people in their prime, men specifically in their prime of 18 to 54-year-olds. 7 million able-bodied men who choose not to work, who choose to sit at home or whatever they're doing and say, we don't want to be part of the workforce. And at the, at the same time, they, admit, they like checked off and self-identified that they spend 2,000 hours a, uh, uh, on screens a year, whether that's video games, whether it's iPads, whether it's whatever. That, that equates to 5.5 hours a day on a screen. Not working, not doing like computer science, like science and stuff like that, like security and all that. So the weird dichotomy, we have underworked people who are choosing not to work. And the way that they exist is by leeching off of other people. Whether it's the generosity of other people, the system, whatever. And not contributing to the system. Some of you don't know this, but I teach high school. Uh, <clears throat> and when I teach resumes and interviews and stuff like that, I always say, like, you have, about, you have less than eight seconds to get my attention as an, as an employer on your resume. One of the main things I'm looking for is, do you, does this person contribute more than they consume? Right? And so that's part of the deal. If, you, if all you're doing is consuming and not contributing to society, what do you expect? What do you expect about the, what we see in our culture? And part of what we have to do is, a, is responsible, and I'm not talking to people who are non-Christians. If you call yourself a Christian... Your main thing is to create a God-honoring culture around you and contribute more than you consume. So you have this group of people, 7 million men specifically in American culture, who are consuming way more than they contribute. And at the same time, we have this overworked force of people who are just working way too much and allowing the busyness of this world to overrun them. And because of this, Family structures, if, if you have a nuclear family, if you just have people together, the busyness of this life gets so busy that there's like the main idea of sitting around a table and eating a meal together is almost gone. Oprah's done this study, Harvard's done this study, Stanford's done this study. Time and time again, the number one most important thing that families can do, according to these studies, and this has been done for over 50 years now, <clears throat> the number one thing that a family can do for parents could do to set your children up for success is to sit down at least three times a, a week and have a meal together. No phones, no technology, you're not watching TV, you're eating a meal, and you're talking. Seems too simple, doesn't it? And yet if you grew up in the 1960s and like 70s and stuff like that, that was pretty standard. But because we've allowed the business of this life to get involved and get over things, and like we went from a needs-based economy in the 1920s now to a wants-based economy, 
And how could you possibly cook a meal over an oven that's over 10 years old? How could you possibly make a phone call or send a text on a phone that's over two years old? Don't we need the latest and the greatest? And guess who feeds the want-based economy? Advertisements. And how many advertisements do you see in a, in a day? You see upwards of 5,000 advertisements a day. You know how? Because you hold a phone in your hand. And you just become a leech. And you just, or sorry, a sponge. And you just absorb all the, all the advertisements. And maybe there's a way that it could say, you know what? You should probably stop doing this. The way of Jesus says this. He says this in Matthew chapter 11. He says this, uh, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in, spirit, and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Around this time that we see this idea of like the change in our economy, the change in our schedules, the change in our family structures, the 1950s psychologists gave us, a, coined this new term called hurried sickness, where you just feel like you like outpace yourself and you're just running and running and running and you're distracting yourself, you're distracting yourself, you're numbing yourself, and yet here's this Jewish rabbi who has these ancient words from 2,000 plus years ago saying, hey, if you come to me, I'll give you rest for your souls. Right? And, and how could Jesus say this? Now, we talk about this, that like Jesus is this Jewish rabbi living in a Roman-controlled era in Israel. A Roman soldier could walk up to him and say, hey, carry my pack that weighs 70 pounds, and I'm going to treat you like cattle for a mile. The phrase, go the extra mile, is a way of resistance, and we'll talk about that later. But here's Jesus who's saying this like to his followers, to us today, that if you come to me, I'll give you, I'll give you rest. I'll give you a light burden. My yoke is easy. The yoke is this, this set of teachings that the rabbi had, not like an actual like, oxen yoke. He's not like literally giving give you a yoke. Does that make sense? But his set of teachings is easy. And yet if you follow Jesus, it's one of the most challenging things you'll ever do. So how can Jesus say it's an easy, it's light, and all this, um, and, and yet at the same time, we just do it. We just follow it one step at a time. Did anyone evaluate the structure and the, the, the safety of your chairs before you sat down? Or did you just do it? We just do it, right? And this is the way of Jesus. We, we can easily test it. We could also just simply follow his ways. And part of what he followed in his ways were the sets of the Sabbath uh, practice and stuff like that. Um, and so his critics, Jesus' critics when he lived, would always talk about going back to the Torah, which are the first five books of the Bible of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they would always refer to this guy named Moses. Moses is a pillar in the faith, in the, Jew, in the Hebrew faith, and in the Christian faith. Um, <clears throat> and so they would always say this, but Jesus would always go back to the foundation of the earth, which is Genesis chapters 1 and 2. When you think about what is God's original plan, what's his ideal plan, and stuff like that, it's actually Genesis 1 and 2 gives us a pretty clear picture that God has created everything, and in six days, whichever phrase you want to get into that, if you watch last week's sermon, um, six days he created everything and then he rested. Was he tired? No. But he wanted to have a day of delight with his creation. And what was the culmination of his creation? Humans. Specifically, woman was the end of the creation. He made man, and he looked down, and he's like, something's not right. Something's missing, right? So he made Adam fall into a deep sleep, and he took a very specific part of Adam's body, which is the rib out of the side. I think it's so fitting. It's so symbolic of where he wants humans to, to rule together. 
He still gives them the, both the charge to rule the earth, right? But he says do it side by side symbolically. Not one gender is going to rule over the other. But side by side, rule the earth. Capture the potential of the earth and the, go have at it, right? And in the Genesis chapter 1, he says this, and then he, he, he takes a day of Sabbath and he rests, he stops. The word Sabbath here is not just to have a day off of work. Some of us, we have a day off of work, but then we do all the house chores that we have to do. But at least you're not being paid by your boss, right? But you're like, oh, I have to fold the laundry, I have to do all this other stuff. And the Jewish tradition, the understanding of Sabbath practice is like you literally are just sitting around, enjoying. And whatever that looks like for you, it's going to be different. So uh, for me, now that I don't work with my hands a lot, I'm, I like to do a lot of hands-on projects. When I was doing manual labor, the idea of doing more manual labor, hands-on projects was like, please, can I not do this, right? Like, my hands hurt, you know, those kind of things. And so you have to find the balance, what works for you, what doesn't work for you. Some days we go on walks. Yesterday was a nice day, so we went on a small little walk. We also watched Carson wrestle at a wrestling tournament, right? And it was enjoyable uh, and stuff like that. Um, as we're yelling at him to, to get better and do it, like all that stuff, like slam his head on the ground. No, we didn't say that, but like all those kind of things. But make sure you heard him and all that. Like, so, um, but it was fun for us to do. And so we did things that we actually enjoy. Whatever you find joy in, you should do that. Does that make sense? But here's the deal. Even if you think, man, I love my job. I'm just going to keep doing this over and over again. God did exactly what he's designed to do when he created the earth. Does that make sense? And even God stopped. And if you think, man, I have to have a productive week, I have to do all this other stuff, you've, you will never, like collectively, we will never have a more productive week than God did. Have you ever created a universe out of nothing in six days? Nope. And yet God is the most productive in one week, and yet, and sorry, in six days, and then he rests. The reason he rests was so that he could delight in his creation. The reason we stop and we practice the Sabbath idea is a way that we can just simply enjoy what we've done. Enjoy the meals. Eat all the food you want. Eat chocolate. Eat ice cream. It's not a day of dieting. Just enjoy it. Does that make sense? And you should have these moments. You should have these days of like, man, I get to enjoy the food. If you want to have it as your cheat day, that's what I've done. I'm good for six days, and then I, like, I don't want to eat a vegetable. I, I hate vegetables in general. But on my Sabbath, I'm not eating a vegetable. I'm not eating the food that my food eats. Like, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to eat the food. Does that make sense? So that's part of this deal. We have to get to that point of doing this. Now, this is where Jesus continually goes back to. This is the ideal. This is what we want to do. This is how we're doing this. Um, <clears throat> and so part of this thing, I just want to, let me just read it really quickly, okay? So here's Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 28. It says this, God bless them, meaning humans. He says this, be fruitful and multiply, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish and the sea and the birds of the air and the sky and uh, over everything living creature. Uh, and then he says this, then God jumped to chapter 2. And then God blessed the seventh day. He made it holy because it was rested on the, on the work he created from that, all that he had done. By the seventh day, God had finished the work and had been doing on the seventh day, and he rested from his work. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. And God blesses three things here. He blesses the animals when he created them, part of the, the creation story account. And he blesses humanity, and he says, go be fruitful and multiply. We've been really good at being fruitful and multiplying, haven't we? Have we done a great job at capturing the potential of the earth? 
We'll see. Right? Hit and miss. But then he blesses the day. He, he blesses this 24-hour window. And there's something beautiful about this, this window and the rhythm here and stuff like this. <coughs> Number one, a couple principles about the Sabbath. Number one, it's not something you work to earn. It's just simply part of our identity. God does not, like, he doesn't ask humans to work for six days and then take the Sabbath. He makes us on day six. Day seven is a day of rest. It's part of our identity. It's part of what we just simply are as, as humans. And then on day eight, we got the work. And what did Adam have to do? He had to name all the animals. It's a lot of animals, right? And we have to figure this out. So here's dog. Here's a mosquito. I'm pretty sure he just got bored. Here's like a rat. Right? Think about all that. Like, he just got through all these complex things, and he's like, rat. And I'm pretty sure he looked down at Cat, and he's like, I don't know how this happened. That's an evil thing, but somehow it made it in, right? So it is what it is. But here's the deal. Notice this rhythm within the, in the day that it says here, okay? Um, that, that part of our, uh, Eugene Peterson writes this down. He says this, the Hebrew evening and morning sequence is, is a conditions us to the rhythms of grace that the way that they structured their day was that the evening happened and then the daylight would happen. So there's a, you go to bed on your day. When do we have our mornings here in American culture? Midnight is the morning, right? Unless you've called somebody at 2 a.m. though and you're like, it's, way, it's the middle of the night, isn't it? I remember having to make those calls when I worked uh, second shift. I'd be like, or third shift, I would call them and say, hey, uh, something happened, broke down or whatever. And he's like, it's the middle of the night. No, it's not. 2 a.m. It's in the morning. They did not like that, right? Uh, my supervisors did not like that. When my sons call me at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m., and they have the same argument with me, oh, it's in the middle of the night. What are you doing? No, it's in the morning, right? We have this condition. But in the, in the scriptures, the way that they understood this was that there was evening, and then there was day. That they went to bed, and the very first thing that they went to bed and thought was, God's going to take care of this. You go to bed having this understanding that I didn't create this world. Very much like the salvation we get, the grace that we get, we don't deserve. We just get the rest in his grace. And that's part of this process of just understanding the daily rhythms and stuff like that. And part of this, we have to get this understanding is that it's, it's, a, it's a weird thing, that, especially as Americans. We love to have, like, be, have a badge of honor of how busy we are. How, like when we talk to people, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good, but busy. Right, and if we have this idea, like almost like our identity is shaped and wrapped up in our in our work ethics and our work busyness and all this and how busy we take our families and stuff like that. But it, the reality of it is, if we don't have an understanding that we are the foundational, we are children of God, we are daughters and we are sons of of God. That's our foundation, and no matter what happens, we can rest and we can have that secure and we have that identity and just simply say, "Yep, I just want to be a child of God." Changes and works and rhythms and schedule and stuff like that can come and go, but we don't need to like it doesn't need to waver us. When our foundation of being a child of God is cracked or wavering, we get pushed around quite a bit by circumstances, don't we? What Jesus says when he says, Come to me, all you weary and burden and all that, is his faith, his understanding, his identity is not going to be wavered by the circumstance. And he and the Jewish people in the first centuries, they were faithful, the Orthodox or whatever you want to call it. They did not take the Sabbath based on the circumstances that they found themselves in. They just simply took the Sabbath. And the circumstances could feel like waver and stuff like that. 
we though, we get so busy. And I remember when I got called into, like I would, I was the guy who had to mandatory my team to come in for weekends for overtime and stuff like that. Sometimes on Friday nights, hey, you have to come in on Saturday. We have to production, stuff like that. And I remember just hating that process of like, I feel so dirty telling you you have to come in, right? And now it's like, ah, this really sucks, but it is what it is, right? And so I remember that idea, but here's the deal. Those should be like, the exception is not the norm. And there's times where, yes, that's going to happen. But don't let this become your, your normal rhythm of life. And don't let, like it, we talked about this before, it takes wisdom for us to say, this is the boundary. Work, you can come up to this point, but you're not coming in any further. And the reason that we, like, the reason that sociologists and people are, like, forward thinkers, when the, when the you guys remember the BlackBerry? When those things, or Palm Pilots, or the first iPhone, stuff like that, that you could send an email from your phone, they're like, this is going to ruin things. It's like, work is just going to continually creep in. It has. I remember when I went from second shift to day shift when I worked at Toyota and I answered a phone call from work at the dinner table and Heather's like, I'll let that happen one time. And that was it. You know what I mean? And I was like, what do you mean? And she was like, mm-mm, this is a dinner table. This is, you'll never do this again. And so from that point on, I just accidentally forgot my phone, my work phone, in my locker. And it was like, work, you're going to stay at work. And when I'm home, I'm going to be at home. Does that make sense? It takes wisdom to figure that out. And Heather's wiser than I am. So I had to learn from Heather's wisdom and all of that. Uh, and so that's part of this process. So th there's going back to that dichotomy of we have overworked people. We need to learn how to have this wisdom. We also have 7 million people who are choosing not to work. Some of us, we need to learn how to go to work. Some of us, we need to learn that it's actually very, like there's worship and there's a value and there's a worth in going to work. It's not your identity. You're a child of God, but you should still contribute, right? Some of us need to be reminded of what Paul wrote Timothy and how he, like I'll just, I'm going to say these words and there's a lesson that hit me hard young as a young dad. Um, <clears throat> and here's, I'll just say it to you. And there's what Paul says, Timothy is pastoring the church in Ephesus, and there's this weird tension within this church and the church in Thessalonica uh, where they think, maybe Jesus is coming back, so why should I go to work? Like, all the signs were showing up that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to rescue this thing of earth and humanity, and the kingdom of heaven is going to overtake and everything else and stuff like that, and the idea of rapture was starting to come in, and here's what Jesus says. Or sorry, not Jesus, Paul says, anyone who does not provide for their relatives, especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Some of us go fill out a job application today. That's your, that's your priority. Does that make sense? And show up on time for the interview. Please don't wear pajama pants or sweatpants <laughs> when you do, okay? Thessalonians, here's what he told, Paul told the Thessalonian church. If you do not work, then you do not eat. And in that culture, in that time frame, the way that you would actually contribute and, or sorry, uh, be able to buy and sell things is, is uh, if you were living in that town, you'd have to go and burn incense to Caesar and worship Caesar, and then you could go to the marketplace. Well, this group of Christians were like, we're not doing that. And so they would sell and buy goods to, to, like within the church. Like imagine coming to a church service, and you're like, hey, I need some bread. So you give some like, grain and like all this, and somebody would trade with you. And here's what Paul says. If you've not worked, you can't just come in and be a consumer. You have to offer something. If you're not contributing, you're not just going to become a leech. Some of us, we need to learn this. I and mean, I think when we learn this tension, 
of one day off and six days to actually work and contribute and stuff like that, then we find this work, we find this tension, and we find this balance. Not necessarily balance, because I don't know if life ever has that. But we have to get to this understanding. You don't earn your Sabbath. You just take the Sabbath. And out of your Sabbath, you, you work from that rest. And as we work, we contribute, we provide, we take care of, and stuff like this. And so we've learned this from Exodus. We've learned this from when uh, Jesus is referring to this. And, and within the Torah, I just wanted to point this out, that Jesus' critics are constantly talking about the Torah, but they didn't know which Torah they were talking about. Because there's a Torah within the Torah, and then there's the Torah. I'll explain this here in a second, okay? So Moses is writing all this Torah down, and he's writing all this down because he has led the nation of Israel out of Egypt, where they've been slaves for 405 years. And he goes to Pharaoh, and he says, hey, let my people go. We made a Sunday school song out of it, if you remember that. Um, and so he writes this all, like he, he's writing all this down because eventually Pharaoh lets his people go after the nation and his family is completely decimated. And he's like, please just get out of here. And they, like the Egyptians, they're literally throwing gold onto the wagons of the Egyptians or the Israelites as they're leaving. And so he wants, us to un- he wants them to understand their identity, what's the purpose, and stuff like this. Exodus chapter 19, God meets with the entire nation. He says, I'm going to meet you on this mountain called Mount Sinai. It's the men, the women, the children, the fat people, the skinny people, the wealthy people, the poor people, all of them. If you had the Air Jordans and everything, you could show up. If you didn't have the Air Jordans, you could show up. Birkenstocks, if you had a Stanley Cup and all that, doesn't really matter. Just show up, right? He says, concentrate yourself, take care. Like, we're going to be here. And here's the deal. As I get to, like, if you live this out and you do what I'm going to tell you to do, then you're going to be a nation of priests for me. And, it, like, you're going to represent me to the, to the nations, and you're going to represent the nations to me. That's what a priest did. It was a representation of a deity and a mediator. And so God positions them in the promised land, which is the, it's the hinge point. It's the connecting point of three continents. It's the busiest place in all of the ancient world. And he says, hey, I'm going to put you right here, and I'm having you be a nation of priests for me. Right? And so in Exodus, we get a, a different reason of why we have to have the Sabbath. This is where the next chapter um, <clears throat> is where the Ten Commandments are given uh, and stuff like that. And so here's the reason in uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, he says this. He says, remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work. The seventh day is a, seventh day, a Sabbath to the Lord. Uh, so you shall not do any work on it, neither you, nor your son, your daughter, your male servants, your animals, anything like that, any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all, the, all that was in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and he made it holy. It's going back into this garden. It's such this like, not utopian, but it's so this beautiful picture of like, man, God did everything. It's like Bob Ross, right? There's no mistakes. It's happy little accidents all over the place. It's so peaceful. It's so everything. Like, man, this is so great, right? And so this beautiful picture of like, man, I get so like, I'm going to take a day. Every, like, think about this. Every, six, every seventh day, you get to take a break. You get to go back into the garden mindset of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It's so beautiful. It's peaceful. It's serene. Kids don't cry on that day, right? You're not changing any diapers on that day. It's just this beautiful time just to hang out, eat all the food you want and stuff like this. But the first generation of people, they do not follow God's law and word and stuff like this. They don't trust God. They doubt God to the point where God's like, fine, you don't want to trust me. You don't want to be going to your promised land. I won't let you. 
God is such a gentleman, he gives us what we want. Even if that means that we don't want him to be a part of our life, he'll, he'll willingly let you have that. It's called hell on earth, but if you want that, go for it, right? It's literally, that's, that's part of that process. And so, an entire generation dies off. So Moses is still around. He's an older man now, like an old man who does what old men do, tells stories that you already know. And then he retells them that you already know. Why do old men do this? They want you to remember the story. And here's what he says. He says, telling the, the kids of the, um, <clears throat> of the Exodus generation, all those parents have died off. Moses and Joshua are still around. Caleb as well. And here's what he says. He gives almost identical. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll let you read that in Deuteronomy chapter 12, or sorry, verse 5, chapter 5, verse 12 through 15. Here's what he says at the end of this. He says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. He's talking about the Sabbath commandment. That your Lord your God brought you up out of with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So, if Exodus is Bob Ross and all this like happy little accents, no mistakes, Deuteronomy chapter 5 is a way of resistance. It's like the punk rock, down with this man, fight the system, all this. When we live into the Sabbath, at the same time we're living into Bob Ross, all that, and in one hand we're living into the way of resistance. Fight the system, down with man, whatever, right? Here's why. The idea of that you were slaves has to be part of your identity. Do people forget that we're, who were slaves? Do they forget that they were slaves? I think it's part of your identity, right? We still have this, con- this, this, this connotation and stuff like this. Like we, we live with this idea that some of us live in the idea that some of our ancestors enslaved people. Some of us live in the reality that we, our ancestors were slaves, right? So this is weird tension that's going on here at the same time. But I think what Moses is really trying to get you to understand is, especially the nation of Israel, that you were slaves. You're no longer a slave. It's in the past. Pharaoh is dead. In the days of Jesus, Caesar was pretty powerful. A couple hundred years, he's going to be dead. The only thing we know Caesar for is a haircut and a salad dressing. We talk more about Herod the Great's accomplishments and his archaeological, like, massive accomplishments than we do Caesar, right? And for the Jewish people in the 1930s and 20s, Hitler is dead. Oh, we have, like, Adolf Hitler. Literally, nobody's named their kid Adolf in a long time. An entire name died off with him and a weird mustache, right? Like, that whole fashion is all dead, Right? Here's what I think we need to understand is that we have these massively like, influential people. You have Rome, Caesar, Pharaoh, Hitler, all those, but they're all dead. Why? Because of God's goodness and God's grace. And the same thing with you and I, our way of sin and our shame is dead. It's buried at the bottom of the Red Sea with Pharaoh. It's buried in some mountain, wherever that is that Hitler died off on, stuff like that, it's all dead. Because Jesus conquered it all on the, on the cross. And the phrase, I, I, this drives me nuts, and I try not to correct people rudely when it happens. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. When people say, I'm just a sinner, saved by grace. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're not just a sinner, saved by grace. Are you a sinner? You were. But if you become a follower of Jesus, you've, you've now become a new creation. 
Don't diminish what Christ did on the cross. You now have victory. The beautiful thing about the gospel is that Jesus took the penalty of the sin with his, everything that was owed for you and me with all of our sins. Jesus willingly stepped in front of that and said, I'll take it. And the blood of the cross has covered that. Through the resurrection and through the tomb, he's now given us the ability to have re- resurrection power so that we no longer have to be consumed by the power of sin. Some of us have forgotten that last part. And the way of the exile stands in the way of the face of everything that's oppressing us and pushing against us, saying, no, you have to be like this. And you say, mm-mm. I can live in Bob Ross territory and the way of resistance, down with the man and everything, right? And the way of the Sabbath is the way that we get to do this, where we get to say, I'm just going to take a, deli- a day of delight. I'm not going to buy anything. I'm not going to do any work. I'm just going to enjoy. I'm going to eat the ice cream too. And I'm going to sit and rest in the grace of God these unforced rhythms of grace that God gives us. And we get to celebrate that every single week. If you don't want to, you don't have to. It's just stupid, right? You can keep going the way that you want to and watch your anxiety levels climb, or you have to rely on other people and all this other stuff. But when we get to live in that way of resistance and we get to live in that way of like, man, I've contributed, I've created this culture of God-honoring culture with partnering with God, It's a beautiful thing to enjoy. Nobody can force you. You just have to choose it. But here's the deal. As we do this, we become better followers of Jesus. And as we become better followers of Jesus, we're better husbands. We're better wives. We're better fathers and mothers, employees. We're better people to be around. And maybe the people who are far from God but close to you could look at you and say, huh, I wonder what's different. And Peter's given us instructions. When those questions are asked, you better be ready with the answer. And it's not because I've Googled this and it's really good. No, the answer is Jesus. Figure it out. It's an all-skate. Let's get involved and create the culture that God is asking us to create, a Christ-centered, God-honoring culture that he can look down and say, yes, now I am well pleased with this. Keep working. Keep taking your Sabbath. The way of the exile. Let's pray. God, thanks for the day. Thanks for who you are and everything you've done for us. God, I pray that some of us today, we would learn what we actually need to do. Some of us need to fill out the job application, show up, do what we need to do to contribute. Some of us need to evaluate, am I consuming way more than I'm contributing? For some of us, we need to have wisdom to say, you know, work, you stop right here. This part of my life, you don't get And as we live into this way of the exile through the Sabbath, God, I pray that we would find rest and delight in you and delight in what what you've created for us. And Jesus, as we live in delight and as we live in a way of slowing down, that something about us would change and something about us would just be inspiring to people who are far from you but close to, to close to us. And God, give us the ability and the answers to have to point to you. And God, as we do this, help us to continually create a God-honoring, Christ-centered culture within our kingdom. We love you, God. Genuinely pray this. Amen. Well, hey, if you want to sign up for the cold sprinkling, it's somewhere back there. Bring hot, cold, hard cash, all the huggies you can figure out and all this. If you need prayer for anything, I'd love to meet with you back there. Make sure you stop in and get service if you knew. 
I want you to know this, that God loved you and that I love you. And as we follow him, we'll encounter the best he has to offer for us. So let's go and be the church. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.